Hello. And welcome to another episode of Saturday the 14th. I am your one host, Maggie. I am your two host, Maddie. I was going to say other host, but that works too. (laughs) I'm one host, you're another host. I'm also two host. We are the heavenly host. One host, two host. Red Red host, host, blue host. host. This host has a little car. This host has a little star. Say, what a lot of hosts there are. You know a lot more of that book than I would have expected you to know. <laughs> you know, I wanted to memorize it at some point in time. I appreciate that. I have That's part as of far a, as I got. I have part of a book from my childhood memorized. I think it's normal. I also have the first paragraph, no, first two paragraphs of um, the Telltale Heart memorized. Weird. Which I used as a monologue to try out for the eighth grade play. How'd that go? Um, there was a lot of silence and just people staring at me afterwards because it's kind of dark yeah it sounds like it would be a creepy and disturbing thing to say nervous very very dreadfully nervous i'm gonna stop you but why would you believe that i am mad i'm gonna stop you now because i don't want to hear the rest of this but what i do want to talk about is another person who is nervous and mad oh man that's such a good transition isn't it right yeah uh this week we are talking about Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, it's fucked up, guys. Yeah, um, I really like the description I read of it earlier today where they said it was the most influential horror movie that you've never heard of or have never watched. Yeah, once you watch this movie, you will see it everywhere. I'm yeah. so excited just to watch, just for everything that I watch from now on because I feel like I'm going to see little bits and pieces of Jacob's Ladder in it. So what I think is so interesting is the fact this movie is so influential on the horror industry and like not just movies but games and television shows and all of that but it didn't do that well in theaters no it really didn't so it's like a very particular audience watched this movie and took it to heart and they all went off to go make their own horror things yeah and i mean i kind of i feel like that happens a lot with horror specifically because the things that other horror creators find compelling or interesting or inspirational are not necessarily what is appealing to the mainstream audience. That makes sense. It's like with Suspiria. Like, there are a lot of people who watch Suspiria and are like, what the fuck was that? I didn't like that. That was really weird. But people who, like, love horror really like it. Yeah. And I think especially with something like uh, Jacob's Ladder, which was written by a guy who is very into Buddhism and is, like, very much about, like, the human soul and life after death and mortality. And this movie was also very, very religious in a lot of yeah. ways. Which I feel like in 1990 wasn't a huge trend. And also it's very, like, it doesn't follow a timeline that makes obvious sense. Yeah. The ending is a little bit nebulous. Like, I can definitely understand how, like, if you're going to see, like, a summer popcorn horror movie and you walk in and you see Jacob's Ladder, part of you is going to be like... What the fuck was that? <laughs> Which is why, I mean, in discussing how we were going to do this episode, we talked about how we needed, like, a what the fuck just happened section. Yeah. Be- and we've never had a section quite like that in no. this because most movies that you watch are pretty straightforward. I think this is one of the more confusing movies that we've watched. I just Googled it the second I finished watching it the first time I watched it because I watched this by myself in my apartment a year ago. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, I've heard of that with this movie. I've heard it had an influence on Silent Hill. I'm going to watch it. And I just sat alone in my apartment and watched it because... <laughs> So I had, by the time that I watched this, I'd already read about it and I was aware of the ending. I knew what the basic concept behind the movie was supposed to be. And I think that that, as a result, I was not confused really by the time that it ended because I had that background understanding of like what I was supposed to be keeping an eye out for. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I had no idea what to look for the first time I watched it and I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, if I hadn't known about it, and I think it's partially just because you've talked about it many times, um, and you basically told me yeah. <laughs> what the concept is, uh, I think that if I hadn't seen any of that stuff beforehand, I would have been like, what the fuck was that? Because um, it really leads you down one direction, and there are a lot of pretty powerful red herrings in this movie. Yeah, it comes across as a movie that's just all about PTSD. Yeah. And surprise, it's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is. it is sort of about, I think it can be about a lot of things, even if, like, the actual story isn't necessarily just strictly about somebody with PTSD. Well, why don't we get into this so yeah. that way we can be a little more specific about all these pieces. Right. Okay, so Jacob's Ladder... Um, was released in 1990. It was directed by Adrian Lin, who also directed Fatal Attraction and Flashdance. Yeah, apparently he almost didn't get this job because uh, the writer didn't think the guy who did Flashdance could make this movie. I understand that concern. Uh, <laughs> the writer in question uh, is Bruce Joel Rubin, who also wrote Ghost before this, and after this he wrote Deep Impact. Yeah, it's funny that both of them made like rom-coms slash romantic movies before this. True, but I think the ghost is also very much about life and death. That's true. And you're clinging to the things that have been important to you in life after you die. Makes sense, yeah. Um, Which, I mean, that's, I think, a big theme for his life and his work. But it is a very different tone than Jacob's Ladder. Is Deep Impact about that? Um, I don't know. I think it's about outer space. I'm not 100% sure. I thought it was, like, a war movie. Maybe. I think I get it confused with Top Gun, which is weird. I feel like those are not similar movies, but I don't know enough about Deep Impact to say for sure. Sorry, not Top Gun. Con Air. That makes a little more sense. I have not seen Con Air. I have not seen Deep Impact, but both of them sound like very dramatic early 90s, late 80s, like action movies. We should just make a second podcast where we guess what a movie is about based on its title and no other information about it and just Done. our Perfect. personal feelings about what it might be. Because I personally okay. feel like Deep Impact is about outer space and that is based on absolutely no knowledge <laughs> of deep impact whatsoever <laughs> um um this movie stars tim robbins this as, movie being jacob's ladder yes not deep impact i don't know honestly tim robbins can be a deep impact i have no fucking clue right i have no idea but he's either definitely in jacob's ladder as the titular jacob singer with um what i read referred to as an appalling haircut it's pretty bad he's so tall is he he's like six five I didn't realize until the scene where he comes back into his apartment in this and like he stands next to Elizabeth Pena, who's like a small woman. And he's like, she comes up to like his mid chest. He's so fucking tall. He I also no has idea. like a baby face in he this. He does. Though. which So I thought he was like a shorter guy because I just sort of assume guys with baby faces are going to be kind of smaller proportion. But he's just a massive baby man. Oh, he's kind of cute, though. He is. He is. But this movie also stars Elizabeth Pena. Uh, it stars Danny Aiello, Matt Craven, Pruitt, Taylor Vince, Jason Alexander, George as, Costanza himself. Yeah, as kind of like a jerky lawyer guy. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Callenberg, Eric LaSalle, Ving Rames, and, and Macaulay Culkin, who is not credited in this movie, but uh, I guess this came out two weeks before Home Alone. Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin, Culkin. Yes. Oh my God. That's my favorite fact about him is that he changed his legal middle name to Macaulay Culkin, and now his legal full name is Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin, Culkin. He's the best. He's incredible. I don't know how he turned out the way that he did, but I love it. And he's like tiny in this movie. He's so cute. Literally just before Home Alone. So imagine him slightly younger than Home Alone. And Precious. just like running around as like a tiny angel baby. I know. 
Um, budget wise, like we said, this movie did not make a ton of money back. Its budget was twenty five million, and it only made twenty six point one million at the box office. But it's had a resurgence, like it's in true. popularity, not in money. You can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. Um, Paramount actually released it on YouTube for a while as like a free classic to watch. Interesting. This was, I think, like pre SVOD things um, for the most part. Yeah. Because I was reading articles earlier, and they're like, oh yeah, like this movie had such a uh, huge impact. Like you can. It had such a deep impact, one might say. <laughs> um, you can totally watch it on YouTube. And they linked to it, and it's been taken down since then. Mm. But um, Paramount was doing a thing for a while where they were releasing movies that were not, like, hugely popular but and were older on their YouTube page. That's a, honestly, prior to streaming stuff, that's a smart idea. It was. Now you can just watch it for free on Amazon, and it's super convenient. Yeah. Um, I've so done that twice now with this movie. Yeah. Hey. I kind of want to watch it again now that I've seen it. It's... I think it deserves a rewatch just because there's so much stuff in it that doesn't make sense the first time through. I'll probably say this again later, but the first time I watched it, like I said, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And then this last time, every single time there was some sort of foreshadowing, I was like, oh, how the hell did I not see the ending of this every single moment? It's um, so like The Sixth Sense. Um, I remember I my dad and my stepmom rented it and watched it. And they told me that when they found out what the ending was, they literally put the DVD back in and started it over from the beginning and just watched it twice in a row. That's a smart, that's a great way to watch that movie. Because that way they could just see every single moment where the ending was hinted at. And this movie is one of those where if you watch it immediately again, you can see every step along the way that takes you to where the ending gets you. Yeah. Yeah. It's masterfully done. It's incredible. Yeah. So um, with that being said, why don't we start from the beginning? Yeah, so uh, we open on October 6th, 1971 um, with the 1st Aero Cavalry Division of the Army who are deployed in uh, the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. And we kind of see like this group of soldiers and we're introduced to our lead who is Jacob Singer, who's a medic. Um, he's getting ribbed by his uh, cohorts because he's taken too many shits during the day. <laughs> yeah. They're all kind of teasing and hanging out during the day. It's a really calm scene. Just kind of shows what life is for like three or four minutes. Yeah. It's just like they're waiting around for this offensive to start. They're like, you know, what's going on? Like, how long are we going to have to wait? And, and it's, yeah, they're just shooting the shit. But then all of a sudden, just things start going wrong. But, like, a lot of things start going wrong all at once. Yeah, there's, like, an attack seems like it's starting to happen. And then at the same time, people are starting to freak out. Like, like someone collapses and has, like, blood coming out of, like, their eyes and stuff. And this other um, guy's screaming about it, how much his head hurts. There's one guy just spinning in circles. Yeah. With his, like, arms out doing nothing. Yeah. And then, so everybody, like, sort of runs off, like... People are attacking, right? So everybody kind of splits up and, like, abandons the people who are freaking out. Jacob runs off into the jungle, and he's stabbed with a bayonet. And he turns, and he looks at the person who's stabbing him with this look that's sort of like, what? Like, he looks confused more than, like, you would expect him to. And then he wakes up. Yes, and he wakes up on uh, the New York City subway. And uh, this is clearly supposed to be years later yes and he is wearing a postman's uniform Mm -hmm. and he is falling asleep on the subway on the way home and he wakes up and he asks a nearby woman like hey do you know if we've passed this exit Mm -hmm. and she just kind of like stares at him and doesn't answer yeah and so uh he kind of he keeps an eye out and they, they 
come into like the station that he's been asking about, Bergen Street, and as he's walking off of the train, he notices this like homeless person sleeping, and they have like this like tail, but it almost sort of looks kind of phallic. It's like this. It does look very phallic. Fat, veiny, fleshy protuberance, basically. And under it their was coat. like sticking out, and it like slides back in as he like looks at it. And he's like, "What the fuck is that?" But okay. And so he gets off the train, and he goes to like exit the station, you know, as a person would. But it's locked. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, well, maybe there's another exit. He goes further down and he walks up the staircase, but there's like a, a like a chain link fence over the top of it that's like keeping it closed as well. So he's trapped in this station. So he decides the best idea is to go across the train tracks to the other side of the station. He takes his damn sweet time with this he does and he like looks both ways he doesn't see anything coming but as he gets closer to the other side surprise surprise a train starts to come yeah um so he sees this bright light coming towards him and he sort of like dodges underneath there's like the um the platform that like sticks out and i guess that's what that little section is for i actually read about that it's like the part that. that goes under the platform is so that like if you do fall on the tracks you can roll under it which don't go on the tracks of a train. Just don't do it. If don't you think experiment you can cross in time, you can't cross in time. Uh, don't touch the third rail. Don't touch the third rail. Mind the gap. Yeah, he was like poking at the th- at the third rail to like see if it would shock him. Don't fucking do that. Bad idea. Don't test it. Just avoid it. Anyway, um, so he crosses that and he rolls out of the way of the train just in time and he looks up and he sees like the inside of the train is lit up all the way through and just all of the people in the train are staring out the window. Yeah, they all have like their hands and faces against the window staring out. They're all kind of like ghostly looking. Yeah, you can't see any of their faces. And then the the conductor or somebody at the back of the train is just waving to him as it drives like, off. very slowly. It's fucked up. An amazing way to introduce this movie. Yeah. So creepy right off the bat. And so he, I mean, gets out and he is able to get out of the station. He gets home. Um, he's living in kind of a not-so-great apartment with his girlfriend, Jezzy. Yeah. And Short for Jezebel. It is. And they take a sexy little shower together. Yeah. Her he, boobs like, are out for, like, the first half of this movie. Yeah. It's like, they're just out so much the first part. Um, so this is when we find out that he is freakishly tall, which is not a plot point, but still surprised me. That's <laughs> fine. So the next morning, um, he wakes up. He has, like, another flashback to Vietnam and he's having like a dream that like people find him in the forest and they're like oh this guy's still alive let's get him there are non-stop flashbacks we probably won't even mention them all just because like every like 10 to 15 minutes in this movie there's some sort of flashback to what's happening in Vietnam as he's like been stabbed and all that jazz like him slowly remembering what was going on yeah and so he wakes up after this flashback and Jesse is getting ready and she's like you know uh she comes in and she has this box in her hands and she's like oh it's you're- a paper bag I think oh right and she's like, oh, your son dropped this off. She doesn't even remember his son's name. No. Uh, so he's divorced, and he has two two sons who are still alive, Jed and Eli. And he has one who has died, and his name is Gabe, and that's yeah. Macaulay Culkin. Yes, and Gabe died when he was in Vietnam. And so she's like, oh, like, what's his name? Drop this he off today. He died before Vietnam, because I think the dad was there when it happened. Well, oh, right, you're right. Um, yeah. And so, because she, she was like, oh, isn't that the one who died before he went off to the mm-hmm. war? And he was like, yeah. There's just a letter later that made me think that he was in Vietnam when it happened. But I think that that... I think he was in the army for a while. Yeah, yeah. And he was I just like, he was actually he was... deployed. Right. Yeah. Um, and so she's like, oh, yeah, like, your your kid dropped him off or whatever. And he's going through him and he's like, oh, this is me as a baby. Like, this is, you know, my ex-wife, Sarah. And she's like, oh, she looks like a bitch. And he's like, well, she like 
she looked good to me. <laughs> yeah, and she says something like, oh, well, she looks like a bitch to me. He's like, well, you weren't the one who married her. Yeah. And um, and then he finds the picture of Gabe. And she's like, Jesse is not a good partner to someone who has experienced loss. She's like, oh, is that the one that died? Good job, Jesse. <laughs> and she's, he's like, yeah, this is Gabe. And she like sort of implies that he should just be like over it, which is like not... A thing that ever happens when you have a kid who dies. I mean, there are a lot of scenes in this movie that show that, like, Jesse really does care for him. Yeah. But she's not a very sensitive person. No, she's not. And she's not a good... Yeah, she just... She shouldn't be dating someone who has as complicated of a past as Jacob yeah, has. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so they're talking and whatever, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go to work. Uh, and on her way out... Because they both work at the post office. On her way out, she throws all of these pictures down the incinerator chute in their apartment. Yeah. Which is a bitch move. He has the picture of Gabe in his wallet, but everything else goes down the chute. He uh, he goes to work. He, at some point, brings food to Jesse. And there's a really cute scene of them flirting at work. Yeah. Um, and then he says he's going to leave early because his back is really bothering him. It's like hurting. He's six and a half feet tall. And that obviously makes her back yeah, hurt. you got to hunch over for stuff. I'm not yeah. even that tall and my back hurts all the time. So he goes to uh, fix his back. He encounters, like, a group of young women singing, like, hey, Mr. Postman. Yeah. And uh, it's a really cute little scene. Yeah. Um, and so he goes to see his chiropractor. Yeah. He's, like, obsessed with this chiropractor. He loves his chiropractor. His chiropractor's name is Lewis. So he goes and he talks to him. And the chiropractor's like, oh, yeah, I saw Sarah, his ex-wife, the other day. And he's like, I think she's still in love with you. He's she like, kept talking about you the whole time. He says, but she hates me. You know, she, she's not going to take me back, all this stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. She loves you. That's what it means when somebody talks about you all the time. It means they love you. And he, like, cracks his neck so hard that he has another Vietnam flashback. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of it, you, there's, like, the shot of Lewis standing in front of, like, the light in the office. And he's like, Lewis, does anybody ever tell you you look like an angel? You just look like a big overgrown cherub. And he goes, you tell me that every time you come in here. It is like kind of sweet. They have like a nice, they have nice a cute relationship. Yeah. yeah. So he leaves. He sees these girls singing to him, and he's like having a nice day. And they're like singing, "Please, Mister Postman," to him, which is funny and cute. And then he turns down this alleyway, and this guy like pops out from kind of nowhere behind him and goes, "Hey, Mister, look out!" And then this fucking car comes out of nowhere. It just goes like barreling down this tiny alleyway. Yeah, like very dangerously. Yeah, and he like barely jumps out of the way. He like jumps into like an like a building basically like an empty building but as the car goes by the people inside the car like their heads are like vibrating really yeah. really fast so like you can't see their faces it's like their heads are shaking so fast and so jacob's like oh shit i should go see my old war doc yeah because he thinks he's losing it yeah he thinks that this is all like caused by ptsd type he didn't say he doesn't say ptsd but it's clear that he thinks it's caused by stuff that happened in the war yeah so um he tries to go see his old veteran's outpatient doctor, and he's talking to this nurse, and he's like, yo, I have to go see this doctor. And she's like, no doctor by that name has ever been here before. And he's like, well, that's crazy. I've been going here for years and years. I was in the service, all this stuff. And she's like, well, we can like have you see like a social worker. And he's like, I want to see a social worker. I want to see my doctor. And she tries to look him up. And he, there are no records of him being there either. Yeah. And so he gets really angry. He like slams something on the table, which causes like a water bottle or something like that to fall over. And so the nurse goes to pick it up and her hat falls off her head. And she has like these little like greasy kind of horn thing sticking out of her head and jacob freaks and so he just bolts and he goes through the like hallway 
into where he thinks his doctor's office should be, and he, like, bursts into that room. And it's this totally random other guy who is, like, doing a, like, support support group group in there. Uh, And he's like, hey, I'm looking for Dr. – I forget his doctor's name. Yeah, I forget it, too. And he's like, oh, uh, okay, let's step out in the hallway for a second. The guy tells him that, like, not that long ago, I guess, like, a week or two – prior to that it was a month before yeah a month before so i think it would have been like right after he'd seen him the last time or something Mm -hmm. like that um his car exploded yeah and he died and so jacob's like what the fuck (laughs) and he's he's feeling all fucked up and so he like goes home and he talks to jesse about it and he's like i'm seeing demons everywhere and she's like those are bag people and homeless people and like drunks you're they're not demons you're just in new york city you're just seeing creepy people around yeah and she convinces him to go to a party with her yes so they go off to this party and they're having a great time. I think it's at a friend of Jesse's. Well, she's having a great time. It actually seems like he's having a good time for a while. That's true. She's on the dance floor. He's clearly not a big dancer. No. And this is a tall person thing, and I can relate to this. <laughs> Short people have it easy with dancing because you can blend into the crowd. But when you're a tall person, and like I've been roughly Jacob's height. I would say I like that you're just projecting on him. No, I am. And I understand how it is. Cause like if I I'm six one without any heels on, but I like my high heels. So if I go out somewhere and I wear like high heels, I'm like easily six six. Right? If a six six person is dancing, everyone can see you. And if you are dancing slightly awkwardly, you feel really <laughs> self-conscious about it because you are literally like everyone's point of reference. Cause you're a giant. You know? So it's very easy to feel self-conscious when you're a very tall person. He clearly feels self-conscious. And Jesse's just having a great time grinding up on some rando. (laughs) Yep. And he's, like, kind of doing the little, like, shuffly snap things. And he looks ridiculous, but he's a giant. My favorite thing that happens in this scene, well, there are two things. One is he goes into the fridge for, like, a beer or something like that. And there's just, like, a sheep's head. Yeah. Not explained. Nope. There's just a full sheep's head covered in saran wrap. And it's like a skinned and everything. Yeah. Probably yeah. used for cooking. It isn't like literally like a head cut off of a sheep. Yeah, I read somewhere that described it as a sandwich, but I can't wrap my brain around how that would have been a sandwich. I What? I don't know. They were like, it's a sandwich shaped like a sheep's head. It's a fucking sheep's no, head. No, that was just a sheep's head. Yeah. There's no way that was a sandwich. A sandwich mm. shaped like a sheep's head? I don't know. See, that's the thing. I read it, and I, I don't even remember what article or whatever it was in. Maybe it was on the TV Tropes page. I was like, that's not... Was there a piece of bread on top and a piece of bread on bottom? I didn't notice because I was distracted by the sheep's head. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, maybe... I, I don't even have any... I don't know. I have, I have no, no idea. idea. Um, and then the other thing is he is, like, walking down the hallway, and for some reason there's just a palm reader, like, in the staircase. Yeah, and it's Essie Patha Merkerson from, like, uh, Law and & Order and other random... Oh, my God, I didn't recognize her. You yeah, used her... Because she's super young. You used her name earlier, and I was like, this name means nothing to me. But as yeah. soon as you said Law & Order, I was like, oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, she's from Law & Order. That's so and, funny. But she's, like, in her probably 30s in this. Yeah, she was really young. Yeah. And she's kind of flirting with him. She's like, come here, let me read your palm. And he's like, no, no. She's like, oh, you're divorced. I can tell because like this break or whatever on your love line. And she's like, well, let me look at your lifeline. That's weird. It's super short. And she's like, according to this, you're already dead. And then Jesse like shows up and is like, are you flirting with that woman? And he's like, I have to go. <laughs> and so that's when Jesse like drags him on the dance floor. And, and he does him his dance. awkward tall man dance. Yep. Uh, and then she starts dancing with this other guy. Who is a better dancer than Jacob. And he, like, leaves the dance floor and just kind of, like, watching. And at some point he notices there's, like, a crow in a cage or something. Or a raven. there's, like, a man who's standing in a doorway whose head does the same, like, fucked up fast movement thing that the people in the car did. Yeah. And then he looks back at the dance floor and Jesse 
It's like grinding up on this guy, and it almost looks like they're having sex. Like she's really sweaty. It, yeah, almost looks like the entire dance floor is turning into like an orgy of sex. There's some literally sort. some people fucking in this scene, also, because there's people on the couch. There are people are, like, on the couch. They on, aren't like. I guess they're not fucking, but they're like making out to the point where like and asses are out and stuff. Like yeah, that. they're like they're in, well on the way. As Jesse's dancing with this guy, like a weird like tail appendage thing, like tentacle comes yeah. out and starts like slithering around her leg and like going yeah. up her dress and stuff like that and then like a horn impales her through the mouth yeah like from behind the head yeah and it's just very sudden because it looks like okay something sexual is happening here before the horn scene right and you're kind of confused as what's going on it gets horny oh my god maggie these are so this good this is my pun episode guys you're doing it I'm i love here. it it's finally happening. <laughs> Isn't it fun? It's fun to do puns. You're just you're just on fire. I am. Anyway, back to people being on fire. Uh, at the same time <laughs> that this is happening, Jacob has a full-on fucking meltdown. He, like, collapses on the floor and starts screaming. And everyone else is like, what is happening? And so Jesse gets him home and puts him in bed and gives him a thermometer. And, and she's, like, mad at him at first. She's, she's yelling like, at him. you mortified me in front of all those people. I've never been so embarrassed. You're screaming. She's like, if you're going to go crazy, like, I'm not going to go crazy with you. Like, you're going to have to do it on your own. And then she takes the thermometer out of her, his mouth and she's like, Oh, shit. Yeah. So she calls the doctor. And she says something to the doctor, like... She says... They ask, the guy, like, asked her what his temperature is. And she says, I don't know. The thermometer stops at 106. Yeah, she's like, I don't... It's gone all the way to the top. Yeah. And so she hangs up. And she's like, hey, you've got to get out of bed. You're like, I need to get in the bath. He's like, what did the doctor say? And she said, he said that you would die on the way to the hospital. Yeah. And so he's like, no, no, I'm so cold. Like, don't... I don't want to get out of bed. She's like, you will die. Get in the fucking bathtub. And so she turns on the cold water and she's just like dumping ice cube trays she into the water. She gets all the ice that she has in her house. She starts banging on um, the door of the neighbor's apartments asking for more ice. She actually has to get the neighbor's help to get him into the tub because he like collapses. Mm-hmm. And so this scene's actually really personal for me. Um, I don't know if you know this story or not, but when I was in fifth grade, I was out of school for a month and I actually had like 104, 105 fever. Oh and um, the doctor told my mom to put me in a lukewarm bath because the ice would actually be a shock. Like, I couldn't go in an ice bath because um, yeah. it would be too shocking to my system. And I remember it just feeling like she was putting – I thought she was putting me in an ice-cold bath. And I was, like, crying because I was so cold and so miserable. And Aww. so, like, I've literally been there. Like, I apparently – I don't remember this, but when this happened, I apparently asked my mom if I was going to die because I thought, like, I was so sick oh for so long. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can connect with the, how horrible of an experience that is. Yeah, it seems <laughs> awful. And he, like, I mean, he that's basically what he says. He's like, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me. Like, it's too cold. I'm going to die. And yeah. she's like, no, shut up. And he ends up passing out in the bathtub. And he has this, I guess, dream. But it's not really a dream. It's more of a memory. Yeah. It's, it's very, it makes more sense when you figure out the whole story. But... He flashes. He wakes up basically in bed next to his wife, Sarah. And he's saying that he's cold and that if she wants to sleep with the window open, if she wants fresh air, she's going to have to start sleeping on the fire escape because it is too cold to leave the window open. Yeah. And so he tells her, like, oh, I had this dream. I was living with this other woman. It was Jezebel from work. We had this great sex life. It was amazing. Like, she had these incredible thighs. <laughs> and so because at first he's like, it was a nightmare. Like, there were demons everywhere. And then he goes into saying that, like, she had these amazing thighs and she was like a great fuck. And she was like, I thought you said it was a nightmare. And he was like, oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so then his son Gabe comes in. And Jake and... Uh, 
Sarah, right. we're they about to have sex. sex. But yeah, they're about And then to the sex. son comes and he's like, oh, Gabe, uh, what's up? Um, but anyway, uh, he goes to tuck Gabe into bed. Yeah, and like his other sons are in the same bedroom and they're like, oh, dad, like we love you, don't go anywhere. And, and one of them's really like, you forgot to give me my allowance. He's like, oh, did I? <laughs> And it's just really cute, and you can tell that like he's a nice family guy, and he loves his it's kids really very sweet. much. Yeah. Uh, and so then he wakes back up, and he's back in the ice bath. Yeah. Um, but he seems to be doing better. His doctor is there. His doctor is Lewis Black. Oh. But he's so young that he doesn't look like Lewis Black. I'm not like, sure who Lewis Black is. Oh, he's the comedian, like the really angry like comedian who used to be on the Daily Show. You would recognize him, I think, if you I'm saw sure the show now. He doesn't look like himself in uh, in this because he's so much younger, but. And he's like, oh, you're so lucky. You nearly died. Like, you have a good woman here who really loves you and stuff like that. Like, you must have friends on high or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. And Jake is like, oh, great. <laughs> awesome. And so he get, like he wakes back up in the uh, apartment and he's like, oh, am I home? And Jesse's like, yeah, you're home. You're here with me. And he, he keeps asking her, like, am I dead? And she's like, no, no, you're alive. Like, it's okay. You're alive. Everything's happy now. And it's just so sad because you can tell, like, he doesn't want this to be real. He wants to be back with his wife and his family. He, there were also some um, flashbacks to the Vietnam stuff. Yes. Kind of interspersed with this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, like, a day or two later, um, Jacob's actually contacted by one of his former platoon mates. Yes. His name is Paul. And um, he reached out to say, like, he's been having similar, like, hallucinations and stuff like that. Yeah, he reaches out and he's like, I'm going to hell. Like, they meet up for a drink and Paul's like, I'm going to hell. I'm pretty sure I see demons everywhere. And, and Jake's like, ah, me too. Hey. <laughs> and then um, they go their separate ways and Paul gets in his car and, like, waves and he turns it on and then it explodes immediately. Yeah. And then this young man, like, in the as the explosion is happening, this young guy sort of, like, drags uh, Jake away from the explosion and kind of, like, makes sure he's safe and then just sort of, like, runs off. Yeah. And um, we see Paul's funeral. And at the funeral, um, Jacob meets up with a bunch of the other platoon mates. And they're all kind of talking about things going on. They decide they should hire a lawyer because they're all having some similar issues. And they think that it was something that the U.S. military did to them. Right. So they're like, okay, we're going to do like a class action lawsuit. We're going to get to the bottom of this. They go and they meet uh, Jason Alexander. (laughs) George Costanza, attorney at law. So he meets up with them and he's like, okay, you need to tell me all about this stuff. And he explains it to him. Like they tell him, you know, that they're all having these hallucinations and, you know, all of this stuff about what happened to them. And he's like, great, well, I'm going to need depositions from all of you. I'm going to have to do some digging, but like, cool, I think we can do this. This is going to be good. But then like the next day the lawyer calls and he leaves a message with Jesse yeah. while um, while Jacob's in the shower and Jesse's like, hey, your lawyer called. And he's like, oh, my God, why don't you tell me? He's like, well, he said he's dropping the case. Yeah. And Jacob's like, what the fuck? And so he goes and he follows up with him. He, like, runs into him at the courthouse. Well, the reason he dropped the case is because all of the other guys dropped out. And so he calls Frank, who's Eric LaSalle, one of the friends, and is like, hey, what the fuck? And Eric, uh, Frank is like, don't talk to me ever again. Like, none of us want to be involved in this. And so then he's like, oh, I got to find this lawyer. And so he goes to this courthouse to track him down. And he's like, what's going on? Why did you drop this? This is so important. And he's like, you guys are so full of shit. Like, you never even went to Vietnam. Like, you went to Thailand and then you were dishonorably discharged. You're, like, kicked out of the fucking military. Like, why are you messing with me? He was like, no, I was there. I was in this place. Like, they're clearly covering something up. 
And he like pushes uh, the lawyer against a wall and then like leaves. Yeah. Really. And on the way out, he gets abducted by these like government guys in the back of a car. Yeah. The same car that tried to hit him. And at some point they say something like, uh, the army was a part of another life. Just let it lie. Yeah. And then they like, he jumps out of the car like at full speed basically is they're like, they're swerving wildly this whole time. They're crashing into other cars and shit like that. And he manages to jump out and get away. But he falls on the ground, like hurts his back. And he does it right in front of a Salvation Army Santa Claus. who's like ringing the bell. Yeah. Is that also played by him? Oh, I don't know. Because it looked, he was wearing like the full beard, but it kind of looked like it could have also been. I was not paying close enough I'm not 100% sure, but Santa takes his wallet. Yeah. Santa's like, oh no, are you okay? And then like lifts his jacket, takes out his wallet, like leaves. He's like, Merry Christmas. And he's like, my son's picture is in that. Please don't take it. And he disappears. And um, next we see him coming into a hospital. Yes. And he's trying to explain what's going on to them like to the doctors but it makes no sense because they're like where's your wallet where's your id and he's like i don't have any because santa claus took it and they're like okay and And he's like screaming about how he needs his chiropractor yeah and so they take him into a room and like a set of doctors like look at him one of the actors is scott cohen which that name might not mean anything to you but it is max medina from gilmore girls woo woo who is uh, Lorelai's love interest, I believe, in the first season, who, like, she says that she's going to marry and then, like, leaves. He proposes to her by giving her, like, a thousand yellow daisies. It's a really beautiful scene, and he's, like, this amazing romantic guy, and apparently his first uh, role, according to Wikipedia, was in this movie, as a doctor who says one line. And so he's like, this guy's fucked up, we gotta take him to the x-ray place. The x-ray place is not a place you want to go. No, so they... um, have him on this gurney and this gurney has like this one wheel that won't quite run right like it won't go straight this is the dopest scene i've ever seen and just google jacob's ladder hospital scene and watch this because this alone will you'll understand how so many other movies and tv shows and games and stuff like that were inspired by this movie for the most part it follows the gurney wheels there's a couple shots of his face and like the things around him but a lot of it just follows the gurney wheels going into these dark fucked up hallways and they get darker and darker and then all of a sudden there's just like blood on the floor and they're like they're rolling over body parts that are just like tossed around the hallway and there's these people like overhead like crawling on like this grate that's going over the ceiling and like, they're all deformed they go by like a, there's like a little alcove that they go by that has like a destroyed bike in it and um jacob looks at it he's like gabe because it's supposed to be like the bike that Gabe um, Gabe died because he was hit by a car while riding his bike. Yes, a car that was careening in a way that is very similar to the way that the oh. car is driving in the rest of these car scenes. I wonder if there are connections there. Fun fact. Um, and there's they're going by, and there's like another alcove that has a like very bulky man wearing like a hood over his head. And he has no legs and his head is just doing that shaky thing. Yeah. This is actually based off of a a photograph called The Man With No Legs. It's by Joel Peter Whitkin. It's almost identical, but you only really get the sense of the movement in the photograph, whereas, like, they use the undercranking effect in the movie. And it's very, very effective. Yeah. We'll talk more about how this effect is achieved and, like, what it actually looks like later. But it's uh, an effect you see in a lot of movies now where just it's moving too, like, one part of the body is moving too fast. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's... It's, uh, like, blurred out and you can't see anything. It's very unnerving. It's very it's cool. Creepy uh, as it's creepy it's, it's an effect you've almost certainly seen before. It 100%. It comes up in a lot of different things now. Um, and so they end up rolling him into this room. And there are a bunch of doctors there. And Jesse's there also in, like, a surgeon's uniform. Yeah. 
And he's like, where am I? I want to go home. And the main doctor's like, you already are home. You're dead. What are you talking about? You're dead. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm alive. Like, I, I want to go home. And he's like, well, then where are you? And he's like, I don't know. I'm alive. Like, And they screw his head into, like, the contraption so that way your um, head won't move during surgeries and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, you're they, this is actually something they still do for brain surgeries and stuff right. like that. They put screws into your skull so that way, like, you can't jerk or anything like that. So if a brain surgeon is doing a surgery, um, they won't fuck something up if you move. It's very um, clockwork orange. It is. Um, and a doctor or, like, a surgeon who has no eyes. Very creepy. Um, like, has this giant syringe and sticks it between Jacob's eyes. Yes. And then he, it cuts to the outside of a regular hospital door. Yeah. And you see his wife, Sarah, and their two sons. So we see uh, Sarah and the boys, and they're talking to the doctor. The doctor's like, he's really doped up. He might not recognize you. Whatever. She goes in. They talk to him, and he's like, am I dying? Am I dead? And she's like, no, no, you're alive. And she tells him she loves him. And then this voice from next to him goes, dream on. And then, like, that's, like, they kind of, the scene sort of wraps up, and she leaves. And then his chiropractor comes to visit. And I love this man. His chiropractor comes storming through the gates, screaming about how this is not the dark ages and we don't need to treat people like this and what are you doing? And, and he's like yelling like, Jacob, Jacob, where are you, Jacob Singer? And you can just hear a voice like, I'm here. And he like storms through. And he grabs like one of the... Uh, like IV stands or something like that. And when the nurses are like... It's his leg. His leg is up in the... Uh, right, and he puts his leg down. He's yeah, because like, that's what he grabs. Me. He's like, okay, like, what is this? He like puts his leg down. He's like, I'm taking him. But he grabs a stand as well, and when the nurses come in, he's like, one more step and I'll wrap this around your head. <laughs> he's like threatening at them with it. And so he manages to cart Jacob off, and he like brings him to his chiropractor place, and Jacob is like, oh, am I going to die? I feel like I'm going to die. And he goes, from a slip disc, that would be a first. And so he's like <laughs> trying to like fix his back problems with just like chiropractic. During. And it works. Um, and at some point, Jacob is saying, like, I saw hell. And Lewis says, like, have you ever heard of the uh, Christian mystic, uh, mystic Meister Eckert? And he's like, well, Eckert saw hell, too. And then he goes on to quote Eckhart. And the quote is, um, he said, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of your life, your memories, your attachments. They burn them all away. They're not punishing you. They're freeing your soul. So if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you'd made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from this earth. And then he basically shows him how to walk again. And he's like, all right, you're good to go. Yeah. And then he's just healed. Yeah. Jacob goes home and Jesse is like, where the fuck were you? And he's You've like, oh, I was in the for- hospital. Yeah. Because she's like, which hospital? I called every single one in the city. You've been gone for two days. And he's like, it's okay. I'm better now. Um, and he's like freaking out. He's really kind of all over the place. And there's a phone call. And so Jesse answers it and she's like, he says, tell them I'm not here if it's for me. And she's like, oh, and she starts talking like, oh, your name's Michael. He says he was like in Vietnam or he says something like that. And so, uh, he's like, oh, I'll take it. And there's this guy who's like, hey, I know what's going on. Can we meet up? So he goes and he meets the guy. And it's the same guy that rescued him from Paul's explosion. And his name is uh, Michael Newman. And he starts telling Jacob about um, 
his history with the war because he was a chemist who was arrested for making LSD and selling it. Yeah, and then the government was basically like, oh, well, if you're good at that, we have something for you. Instead of going to jail, you should go to Vietnam. And he says something like, I spent 24 hours in, like, Rikers, and I knew that even Vietnam would be better. And he's like, you clearly had not been to Vietnam or been in war before. And he's like, yep, <laughs> turns you're out right. I was wrong. But so you ended up working with the Army's uh, Chemical Warfare Division, and they designed a drug that was specifically made to increase aggression in soldiers because they thought the soldiers were all weak and so they wanted something that would like increase the testosterone and like the rage and stuff and they called this drug the ladder yes because it's supposed to send you straight towards they call it straight down the ladder to this very aggressive violent place yep and so he explains that in order to test the drug's effectiveness because they didn't think that like there was this big offensive coming up they didn't think that the soldiers were ready they thought they were going to go too easy on them um and so they fed it to, they like worked a small amount of it into Jacob's unit's uh, food supplies. And he said that what they did, um, they saw monkeys, they tested on monkeys in advance and like they went crazy. And like, and then they tested it on POWs and they ripped each other apart. And they were children that they tested it on who did this. Like teenagers, yeah. Um, and so they gave it to this unit and the unit turned against each other. And just started killing each other. And so it turns out that in this opening scene, it was all just people from the same unit who were, like, shooting each other and killing each other. Which is why he was so surprised when he was stabbed, because it was by another American. And so then we get the flashback, and we see the stabbing again. We see that he was actually, yeah, stabbed by another member of his unit, who was an American soldier. And so then, after all of this information, he decides he's going to go back to his old home. Yeah, his family home where he lived with Sarah and his kids. And he goes back. The front doorman lets him up. He goes up there, and the place is completely empty. And he just goes, and he sits on the sofa. He, like, looks at photos at some point and stuff like that. He looks at a letter that Gabe wrote him. He remembers the flashback of the day that Gabe was hit by the car. Yeah, he goes through a box of his things from the war um, yeah. that includes, like, his dog tags and stuff his like that. Honorable discharge papers and all that stuff. And he sits down in the living room, and he just sits there for a while. And there's another couple of, like, Vietnam flashbacks at this point in time of him getting lifted up, airlifted up into a helicopter. And apparently one of the people in the helicopter is also Michael, although I didn't recognize that. Oh, I didn't realize that, It's what it says in the um, kind of description on Wikipedia. I didn't notice that in the moment, um, but apparently that's the case. And then it cuts to sort of, I guess, the next morning, basically, it's supposed to be. Yeah, he, like, he wakes up because he fell asleep on the couch. Yeah, and he hears... Gabe behind him. Or he sees someone running around. And yeah, uh, baby Macaulay Culkin kind of shows up and comes out. And he's sitting on the stairs. And he's like, hey, dad, how's it going? And he goes over and he sits with him. And they sort of hug and he cries. And Gabe says, basically, like, come on, dad, it's time. And he's like, okay, that sounds good. And he takes Gabe's hand and they walk up the stairs together into the light. And then it fades to white. And then it cuts to a triage tent in Vietnam where these two guys who are working over his body are like, okay, well, that's it. He's gone. Like, he's dead. There's nothing else we can do. And they're saying something like, he sure as hell fought, but he looks like really peaceful, doesn't he? Yeah. And on the way out, the guy at the desk is like, what's that guy's name? And he goes, oh, it's Jacob, Jacob Singer. And they drop off his dog tags with him and they leave. So the question I had at the end of watching this movie for the first time So the question I had 
when I finished watching this for the first time was what the hell just happened? Yeah, I can imagine that being your reaction. It's uh, very ambiguous for a long time, right up until the end, and then it's sort of like, figured out. <laughs> yeah, so um, this was one of the first times in a movie where the twist at the end was he was dead the whole time, or oh. dying the whole time. It was inventive in 1990, though. It was. I mean, this was pre-Sixth Sense. This was pre- a lot of those movies. Yeah. Or, like, where it was, like, a dream the entire time or whatever. Right. Um, so it was a new kind of twist. It was. And it makes sense. It does. Because, I mean, on the opening scene where he, like, wakes up in the subway, the first thing he looks at is, like, are these two posters that are, like, advertisements. And one is for, like, New York that's white and it has a giant apple on it and talks about, like, the big apple and how you can never die when you're bored here. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a giant black sign that just says, hell. Like, it's what happens when you're on drugs. Yeah. Which, uh, he was on drugs. It's cause... true. He was, because of the military. There's a lot of Ooh. apple references. Like, she gives him, Jesse gives him apple juice. They're in the big Oh, apple. she does. There's a lot of, like, Adam and Eve stuff. It's a little, uh, there is a version of this script up on um, Bruce Joel Rubin's website. The, like, the original version of it. And a lot has changed, but uh, it's less subtle than this version, for sure. They, like, it, this really. This very subtle. It's very, a lot. Um, but there's like a bajillion references to apples in his original script. I mean, in this, a lot of the time when you're watching it, it seems like it's a movie about a soldier experiencing PTSD and remembering what happened to him in the war. Yeah. And it turns out it's just what's happening in his head as he's in the process of dying. Yeah. Um, yes. (laughs) And I guess they kind of lay it all out on the line when Lewis says the line about like, you'll either see devils and think that they're ripping your life away or if you've made peace with it you'll see angels and they're freeing you from like your earthly life and yeah there are um seemingly characters who are kind of either devils or angels or kind of both in some ways yeah and i think that there's a lot of ambiguity about that because on the one fact uh, on the one hand you could look at jesse as just a devil but if you look at her through kind of the lens of that line she is helping or trying to help him burn away his old life literally like she throws the uh, she does photos but in the fire. she also like does everything to keep him alive and keep him there and like gets upset when he leaves the area that's true and that's almost like yeah it's it's complicated she's sort of like tempting him to stay in this sort of middle state in this purgatorial state because you do get the sense that she really loves him that she wants him to leave maybe his human life behind and his family and his war life and all of that stuff behind and just stay there with her in purgatory but like the government guys are trying to get him to leave it all behind yeah and their argument like they're arguably the villains of the movie that's true and lewis is trying to get him to leave it behind but he's like the angelic figure more so than anyone else in this entire movie yeah um and literally the the doctor in the hospital tells him exactly what's going on so does the palm reader at the beginning yeah there are a lot of people who straight up say hey you're dead and he's like no i'm not and the viewer usually is like no he's not he wouldn't be dead if we were watching a movie about him right oops so apparently there's this thing in buddhism and this is a very rudimentary understanding of it because i don't know anything about buddhism but um ruben is very into buddhism um called the bardo state I don't know if that's the way that you actually are supposed to say it or whatever, but it's like the state between death and rebirth. And that's what this is supposed to be about. 
Oh. So it's about him letting go of his life, accepting death, and then being able to move on to the rebirth state. So I kind of also have this idea that, like, in addition to trying to get him to, like, leave it behind and just go, part of the, like, projection of what his life will be after Vietnam is kind of what he's seeing to be like, you should let go now because there's no point in trying to hold on longer because if you go home, your marriage will fall apart. You will be, no one will believe you if you try to tell them what you've been through. The government will cover up everything. Your friends will die. I mean, I think that fits in the sense that um, it's literally said like the army was part of another life. Right. And it's almost sort of like, even when he tries to take comfort in, like, the moment where he could potentially reconcile with his wife and she comes to see him and tells them that she loves him, there's this voice that pops in from nowhere and goes, dream on. Like, that wouldn't happen even if you did make it out alive, even if you did go back. None of this stuff is going to go back to normal. Your son won't be there. You know, none of this stuff and, will matter. Um, when the he calls his friend saying, like, why did you back out from the phone call, that friend also says something like, war is war. Things happen. There's nothing to do. Right. And, which is, I wrote that quote at the end, which is why I didn't have it at the time. Yeah. But that's one of those things where, like, this happened. There's nothing you can do to change this. Right. It's just how it is. You have to let go of it and you have to move accept on. it. You have to move on. Don't cling to it. There's nothing really to cling to. But there is a lot of kind of both demonic and angelic Vi- uh, imagery yeah. through this entire thing. Kind, I say kind of. It's actually very, like, hits you over the head. Yeah, so I think we should maybe talk a little bit about Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the movie, and I would say, as much as Adrian Lynn is certainly, I mean, as the director, a very powerful force and really shaped this movie, the concept of it comes from Bruce Joel Rubin, and it's kind of important to know his backstory. Yeah, definitely. We're going to cite a few different, we're going to talk about a few different um, things, different sources in this. One of them is actually his website. His website is very informative. It is brucejoelrubin.com. He has extensive bios and a whole, like, page about Jacob's Ladder and how he conceived it and all of that good stuff. Um, I mean, it's very convenient for us. Yeah, it's nice. Most writers don't have that. You should have that if you're a writer. I kind of understand why, because to have an entire, like, extensive biography of yourself, plus, like, here's every thought I had about while writing this movie, like... It can probably come across as a little... Yeah, it comes across real self-important, but, like, please but, give me those primary resources. Yeah. It helps so much. It, I mean, it helps people like us who want to discuss a movie and not get things wrong if it's coming from the uh, horse's mouth. Yeah. Uh, there's a New York Times article called Up Jacob's Ladder and Into the Hell of a Veteran's Psyche from 1990, written by Tim Golden, that we will be discussing. Uh, there's an interview with Bruce Joel Rubin um, on the website tricycle.com. It's called Real to Real, and it is written by Gaetano Kazua Maeda. Um, there is a Washington Post article called Bruce Rubin's Tales from the Script by Carla Hall, written November 4th, 1990. Um, there is a Uproxx article called You're Already Dead, Celebrating 25 Years of Jacob's Ladder by Chris Eggerston. Eggertson, sorry. Um, we have a birthmoviesdeath.com uh, article called Purgatory and PTSD in Jacob's Ladder. Uh, there's a mediaroots.org article called BZ and Secret U.S. Government Experimentation. I believe you added that. Um, there's an article called The Real Story of Jacob's Ladder, Government and Drug Tests, and The Ladder uh, by David Ian McKendry on the 13th floor.tv. And a wow247.co.uk article called Jacob's Ladder, the most influential horror movie you've probably never seen uh, by Mark Butler. So those are the sources that we're going to be citing for this. Uh, Check them out. 
give them a read. They're all very interesting. So Bruce Joel Rubin, uh, he kind of started his career in film as a film editor in the 1960s. And then he got real into LSD. (laughs) Who doesn't in the 1960s? I mean, in the 60s, you know. And it makes sense. I guess he had a roommate that was really into it and was like, try this. And he gave him a pill and then he carried it around. This is all from Ruben's website. Uh, And he carried it around for a long time. And then he tried it. And even though it was apparently a strong dose, it didn't do anything to him. And he was like, this is bullshit. This didn't do anything. And so his friend was like, okay, I'll give you some liquid LSD. And he meant to give him, so you're supposed to do like a drop on the tongue. And he accidentally emptied the entire dropper onto his tongue. a lot of LSD. Yes. Uh, this is the only part of his, like, bio on his website that I seriously questioned, because he said that this gave him an amazing trip. So, I have a family member who I will not identify, (laughs) but they have told me that they used to skip school to do LSD and go swimming, and it was like swimming through diamonds in the most beautiful way possible, and apparently it's supposed to be killer yeah i mean my understanding is that lsd can be quite enjoyable but i also understand that if you do an entire dropper of liquid lsd that usually like sends you through a nightmare world where demons are trying to eat your bones or some shit like that Well, maybe it's also like i think usually the first time you do something like this like it doesn't affect you as much that's true so maybe if it was like the 10th time and you got a full dropper it would be bad but because it was like the first time you needed more to get that trip I don't know. I don't know anything about LSD. I don't either. But he said that uh, he got the sense that my life had only been about two seconds long. And now I was resuming a larger journey that was a multi-billion year, that was multi-billion years long. I sensed that it was going to take away everything I thought I knew. And he was like, I want to become a Buddhist and travel the world. You know, there are worse things to become. Honestly, there are. I guess he had like another couple of editing jobs after that. And then he was like, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to go seek enlightenment. He got like an offer to stay at somebody's like apartment in Greece. And he was like, I'm going to do that. Bye. Great. And so he left and he traveled the world. He went to India. He went to Tibet. He got really into Buddhism. And then he moved back to New York and like found like a teacher in New York and got into like really like daily meditation, like really into Buddhism. So do acid, get into Buddhism, write a movie. (laughs) That becomes one of the most influential horror movies of all time, but no one watches. Yeah. Uh, And so he kept kind of bopping around in film, and he wrote a sci-fi script called Quasar? I don't actually know how you say that word. I don't know how you say it either. I think it's Quasar. Q-U-A-S-A-R. Uh, and he said, we, we, him and his writing partner uh, came up with a story about an astronomer who discovers what he thinks is a giant quasar, but it turns out to be something that spiritually changes his life. That was the breakthrough. My spiritual life and my creative life merged. It all became one journey, one unfolding. And that honestly is something that shows up in kind of the rest of his movies. It is very spiritual. It's a lot about the connection between life and the afterlife and human existence and enlightenment and all that stuff is like a major theme for him. So he kept writing all of these scripts with these metaphysical elements. And his agent contacted him and dropped him because he didn't think anyone wanted to make movies that were very metaphysical or about ghosts. He specifically said no one in Hollywood wants to make movies about ghosts. I mean, he was wrong because... He was so wrong. Hollywood loved the movie Ghost. Which he wrote. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But this was like... So this would have been... Like, the late 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. So I guess it is a little bit before, like, the ghost boom took off in, like, the 80s. Because I feel like that's when ghost and haunted house horror really, really kicked up. Like, there was some in the 1970s, but, like, real ghost shit kind of started in the 80s, I think. Um, And so he moved to Illinois with his family. He's like, fuck it. I'm out. I'm going to move to Illinois. 
I don't want to do this anymore. But then he wrote Jacob's Ladder. Yes. Because he had a dream, um, which is basically just like the first New York scene in the movie. He said, I'm traveling through the bowels of New York City. There are very few people on the train. A terrible loneliness grips me. The train pulls into a station and I get off. The platform is deserted. I walk to the nearest exit and discover the gate is locked. A feeling of terrible despair begins to pulse through me as I hike to the other end of the platform. To my horror, the exit is chained too. I'm totally trapped and overwhelmed with a sense of doom. I know perfectly I know with perfect certainty that I will never see daylight again. My only hope is to jump onto the tracks and enter the tunnel, the darkness. The only direction from there is down. I know the next stop on my journey is hell. And he says that like his whole dream was basically just about how it felt to live in Illinois <laughs> and not like <laughs> and like feel like his career was over, like his wife was supporting the family, he felt trapped. Uh, and so he wrote the script. And he said his wife was like, why are you writing this? This is really fucked up. And he was like, I don't know. I'm just writing it. You know, there's this thing called communication. Yeah. You don't have to write a horror movie to express your concerns to your partner necessarily. But, I mean, it, it seemed to work out for him. It did. That's true. Um, I hope his marriage worked out. I think that it did. Okay, it seems good. like it did. I didn't read anything about them getting divorced. That's good. Um and so it ended up, like, on a bunch of these, like, he, he wrote it, he sent it to, like, an agent of his. He started working with another agent um, in New York who really liked it. But it ended up on all of these, like, best unproduced scripts lists, like, kind of the precursors to, like, the blacklist. Because uh, having read the original version of it, in 1980 when he wrote this, no one could have made this movie and had it not seem horrible and really corny and completely insane because there are like like all of the demons are very classical demons and there's like all this insane hallucinatory visual stuff happening and these like really crazy set pieces and so people would be like this is an amazing story we pass I don't want to do this like we can't do this it's too hard yeah yeah and I guess that he did kind of get some offers um from people he said the Nightmare on Elm Street types. I don't know if that actually means that Wes Craven reached out to him about it or if he was just categorizing that whole like group of horror type What's of What's wrong guys. with Nightmare on Elm Street? Nothing's wrong with Nightmare on Elm Street, but apparently it was not good enough for Bruce Joel Rubin. <laughs> Might have made more money. Honestly, it would have looked corny if they tried to do this Nightmare on Elm Street style. And apparently a lot of people were coming to him and being like, we can do this real cheap. And he was like, uh. Because I guess he'd sold another script that ended up being the movie Brainstorm and had been really heavily changed. And he just, like, hated the way that it turned out. And he was like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to wait until somebody knows what I want. Do you know how he feels about this adaptation? He likes it. Okay, good. Yeah, I think they worked very closely together and he had a lot of, like, input. And I think it sounds like that they kind of butted heads at times, uh, which we'll get into in a sec. But I think overall he really likes it. So then ultimately, um, Tracy Jacobs, who was a literary agent uh, who had gotten her hands on the script. And this was, like... 19, I guess 1989, 1990 at this point. She sent this to her friend, Adrian Lynn. It was probably even earlier than that because this must have been filmed in 89 if it came out in 90. That's true. So this would have been late 80s. It would have been almost a decade after it was written. She sent this script to her friend, Adrian Lynn, who was a British filmmaker. He started off in commercials. He was really into like new wave, French new wave directors like uh, Godard and Truffaut. And he had already made Flashdance in 83. Classic horror movie. <laughs> Nine and a half weeks in 86, which I guess is sort of like a sexual thriller. And Fatal Attraction, which is also a sexual thriller. I've never seen Fatal Attraction. I haven't either, but I do really want to see it. I do too. Yeah. I hear it's fatal. It'll kill you. 
and so he reached out to her and was like, do you have anything that's like not boring? And she was like, you need to read this insane script. And so he read it and was like, okay, this is awesome. Apparently he really liked the short story. There's a short story by Ambrose Bierce called The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is kind of the same thing. It's about a guy who's about to get hanged, uh, having sort of like this like a dream right before he dies, basically. It's kind of the same concept. There's like a 1962 movie about it. Um, And he was like, cool, I want to make this movie. And so he reached out and he had this like sit down, like coffee with Ruben. And Ruben was like, I don't know if I want the guy who did Flashdance to make my movie. I mean, valid, but also... It's very different. (laughs) He could have said the same thing where he's like, I don't want to make a horror movie written by the same guy who wrote Ghost. True, it's a very different thing. But ultimately, they like they connected on this, and Ruben felt that he kind of understood what he was trying to do with it. So he was like, okay, we'll do it. And then they got into the situation where they had to adapt Jacob's Ladder for the screen. Yeah, um, this is very different than the initial uh, design of the script. Yes. Um, Ruben's writing is really cool, very visual, very evocative. Uh, now you could probably make it very true to the script. Well, especially the CGI and oh, stuff. for sure. Not in 1990. No. No. No way. Um, there's, there's a line in the script where the line says, the wall shatters and behind it, we see a vision of hell. And Adrian Lynn was like, cool, how many carpenters will I need to make a set that shatters? And then we see a vision of hell. <laughs> Ruben had this very like classical, big scale, sort of like they compare it to like, it's very like Bosch, like, like Hieronymus Bosch, um, really elaborate sets, like winged monsters. And Lynn referred to it as the Liberace version. I love that. He was like, no one is going to see this. This looks insane. It's way too unrealistic. We cannot do this. And so they sort of worked it out um, and they came up with this vision of hell Uh, that was inspired by the works of Francis Bacon, um, who does, if you look up the, like, the paintings that Francis Bacon does, there's a couple that really kind of caught my eye. There's one called Study for a Portrait, which is just this man, it looks like he's in front of, like, a shower curtain, basically, and it looks like there's a contraption over his head, although it's a little hard to see exactly what it's supposed to be. Maybe it's the room around him. And he's, like, screaming, and his face is sort of blurred out. Something weird's going on there. It kind of gives you that sense of motion, like, the blurred out faces in this movie. Yeah, and the, uh... Even though you can see that he has eyes, he's like wearing glasses, like there's something funky going on there too. There's also another uh, painting by him that is less specifically connected to this movie, but it's called Figure with Meat, and it is fucked up. Yeah, it's like a guy standing underneath what looks like an, a ripped open like torso. Yeah, it's like, I don't know if it's supposed to be a cow or what, but it's like the you can see the rib cages and it's just like over his head. Uh, so they're very dark. The color scheme is like yeah. lots of dark colors. The uh, figure with me is very like Midsommar to me. It is pretty Midsommar. Yeah, I would. I definitely see that. Diane Arbus is another person who has an influence on this. Um, she was a photographer and a lot of her work focused around people with um, deformities or really odd looking people. She kind of focused on like taking pictures of people who like normally wouldn't necessarily be photographed or like given that kind of attention. Yeah, she was a really, really cool photographer and she she worked with a lot of unusual subjects that you wouldn't see elsewhere. The art of William Blake really influenced the original, I guess, script. And you can see it in like the weird slithery tales. Um, he was a very, 
very demon-y, very demon-heavy artist, and there are a lot of those scaly tails. There's one uh, painting that's of a, like, a horned demon with, like, these wings that are sort of, like, multi-armed wings, right? Like, bat wings if bats had, like, seven arms. I mean, in a way, I could still see this somewhat influencing the movie they made. Yeah. Just, you don't see, like, a demon standing there with horns and wings. Instead, you see, like, you see, like parts like, of it. Small flashes occasionally. Which I think is much, I think it works a lot better. I think if you saw this whole thing, you'd be like, fuck that. That's dumb. Yeah. But, like, a portion of it is creepy. Um, and then obviously we already talked about uh, Joel Peter Witkin being the inspiration for like the scene with the guy with no legs. Um, his photography is also kind of in the same. It's a little more experimental, I think, than Diane uh, Arbus's. Diane Arbus is just like people actually out in the world, whereas Joel Peter Witkin used a lot more like camera tricks to like remove people's limbs or just show like one leg like on a platter or something like that. Um, That's so creepy. It is. His work is weird, but it's definitely worth looking into. There's a lot of nudity, a lot of like weird, upsetting sexuality in his work. Um, I mean, you could say there's a little bit of upsetting sexuality in this movie. I would sure say that there is. Yeah. Um, So they found all of these sort of like shared artistic viewpoints uh, that they wanted to base this off of. And Ruben says, uh, out of that, the hospital as hell began to emerge. In a sense, for the 20th century man, the hospital is his final resting place, and it's very frightening for most people. That's a quote from the Washington Post article. Um, But Lynn kind of felt, kind of like we do, that if you saw the full um, William Blake-style demon, it's not scary. It looks corny, especially in 1990. You can't do that in a way that doesn't look shitty. Um... So he put in these, like, the little growths, like, on the nurse's head in the hospital or, like, these little things that are like, oh, what's that? Like, the weird slithery growth in the guy on the subway. Or in the dance floor scene, like, you never actually see a good shot of the different things going on. And, like, when the horn penetrates through um, the back of Jesse's head, like, it's such a quick shot and then it's over. Like Yeah. You don't, it's, like, disorienting. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't linger long enough to be corny. And ultimately, they ended up cutting, like, 20 minutes of the more fucked up stuff. Yeah. Um, there was a different ending that had, like, a lot of scenes along the way. Mm-hmm. And it was just too dark. Yeah. And the test audiences were like, nope. So they, they, they thought they were overwhelming and just, like, way too much. So they cut that out. Um, so, But despite the fact that this does kind of come from, like, a, a Buddhist angle, there are a shit ton of biblical references in this thing. Yeah. Starting with literally the name of the movie yes is um so i do not have a ton of religious education to be honest yeah i was raised in a not like a super religious household but like i went to church every sunday i did bible school and sunday school and all that stuff i probably went to church 10 to 20 times in my life (laughs) um so i will say that if i talk a little bit about this and i get certain things wrong i'm sorry i also will probably get some things wrong because even going to church every sunday does not mean that you have a full front-to-back understanding of the bible um but so jacob's ladder i mean it is a biblical term that's about jacob who had a dream about a ladder that would take him to heaven and jacob is a very important person in the bible in the book of genesis he has this dream of a ladder descending down from heaven and there's all these angels ascending and descending on it so you'd think just from knowing what the name of the movie is we could figure out that he is dreaming about going to heaven. You would think so. And uh, and yeah, I did not figure that out. <laughs> well, I mean, you kind of have to have like read Genesis. Like, it's not like one of the normal stories. It's not like, I don't know. Adam and Eve. Yeah. Like, or like, I, I don't even know. 
It's not one of the ones that you hear about on a regular basis, even if you do go to church all the time. I don't think I ever learned about Jacob's Ladder. I mean, like, people well, know I, about, like, the game. I was going to say, like, the little, like, uh, flippy wood piece. Yeah. That's called Jacob's Ladder. I know about that. Or, like, the dick piercing. Um, but they also didn't teach us about that in church, so. They didn't? No. But in addition to that, I mean, also every single character's name Yes. Jezebel is definitely the most obvious. And it's so funny because in her scene where like she's kind of introduced, she's like, I never really went for church names. And he's like, your name is Jezebel. Like, where the hell do you think that name came from? Um, so she is, Jezebel was like the queen of Israel who encouraged her husband, King Ahab, to abandon um, God in order to like follow like these false deities. Yeah. And it now usually just means someone who like uses their sexual wiles. To like corrupt men. Because she's a Jezebel. She's a sexy woman with makeup on. Yeah. And then you have like Gabe. He's the angel Gabriel, the messenger of God, basically. Yeah. He's supposed to signal, like, God's return to Earth, and he's, like, the angel who told Mary she was going to have Jesus. Like, he's a big... He's a big deal. Big deal angel guy. They have Eli or Elijah as well as Jed. Mm -hmm. Those are a little less exciting. I mean, Elijah's a big deal also. I think Eli also means, like, God himself or something like that, but Elijah is, like, a prophet who apparently could raise the dead by, like, God working through him. And Jed is, like, a name that he's not like a character in the Bible so much as like a name that's like given to someone else, but it means friend of God. And then um, there's Sarah, mm -hmm. who is the wife of Abraham. Yes. And she is granted a son in her old age by God. So she is a mother figure, a very important mother figure in the Bible as well. And also related to Jacob. Yes. She's his grandmother. So he was sleeping with his grandmother. Creepy fun. Yeah. Also in the script, the original script, her name was Esther, and Esther is also another biblical figure. Interesting. So always, always intentional. And then St. Paul is obviously a very important figure. He is. He was actually not um, a pre-Jesus person. Uh, he was converted after Jesus' death. He was like, he persecuted Christians and then was converted by a vision of Jesus and ended up founding a bunch of churches. So he's also very, very important in Christianity. And Michael is the archangel. He's like head bitch in charge up there. HBIC. Please do not boycott our podcast for me calling Michael the head bitch in charge. I think it's an accurate I don't think we have a lot of very religious listeners. I'm going to guess. If we do, we're not insulting it. We're just no. using colloquial terms yeah. to describe religion. Uh, he is the protector and the leader of the army of God against the forces of evil. So it kind of makes sense that he's the guy who like comes in and sort of explains the whole thing and sort of saves uh, Jacob. And most of these characters are portrayed in like a very angelic way. Yes. Everybody with a name other than Jezebel, Who's... everybody with a biblical name is important and good. And uh, it's interesting because Lewis is not a... No, Lewis is just some dude. Lewis is not a he remotely... He's still named after someone. Yes, he's named after a... It's like another uh, theologian or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's I don't someone who is also important in the church, but like post-Bible. Like far post, like 400s or something like that. But so... Obviously, we talked about how this movie was influenced by Buddhism, influenced clearly by Christianity. But what I think is so interesting that you don't, like, for some reason, it's kind of thrown in at the end, I guess, is the whole BZ thing. Yeah. So um, BZ was a chemical compound. Also, I'm going to butcher this, but it's known as 3 
quinaclidinol benzylate, which was an incapacitating agent that also had like a really strong hallucinogenic effect. And so they did a lot of testing in the 1960s on this. I think it was specifically 1968 or 1969. And um, they actually mention it at the end of this movie. So like the, there's a closing scene that just has like black with white text that says like, hey, the government used this thing called BZ uh, to experiment on the army. Yes. And um, so even though the movie closes with this, uh, the director said that um, it was never actually used on human test subjects because it was not known to have happened at this point. But in the years since then, there have been um, documents that have been declassified by the government. I think in the late 2000s, maybe early 2010s, the articles I read that Maggie cited earlier um, were written in 2012 because that's when there is a lawsuit happening because previous members of the army were suing the army for experimenting on them with this drug. It happens like it happens in the movie. I know. Life um, imitating art. And so and they seem like they were people who volunteered for this, mm-hmm. but... I read it, uh, the article I was reading um, talked about how knowing consent couldn't really exist when it came to hallucinatory drugs because just like it was so unknown. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, supposedly this is the only biological agent that was ever weaponized by the U.S. military. I feel like more of that will get declassified at There's some point There's a good chance of that. But they put it in a ton of bombs. It was supposed to be like used in aerosol form. Um, was never actually allegedly used. Okay. Um, and But the uh, stockpiles weren't actually destroyed until like 1989. Great. Keep it around. Um, but the effects were described as a waking, walking nightmare. That's what this movie is. Exactly. Holy so, shit. Like, this is real MK Ultra shit. Accurate. Like how everyone was like, MK Ultra is a thing. The government's using mind control. And people were like, that's crazy. And then all that stuff about MK Ultra came out. And they were like, no, yeah, we were using mind control. Yeah. It's real, guys. Well, it's kind of like a smaller part of the movie because the movie was a lot more metaphorical and a lot less literal. Like, the literal side of it also literally happened. It's true. The literal side did literally Um, happen. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. There's so much in this that ended up being so important. Like, obviously, that's a huge trope that, like, came true and ended up being real. I mean, this is not the only movie to do this, though, because, like, we watched Firestarter. Very true. Which showed the U.S. government experimenting on people that's true this in this world though it doesn't give you superpowers it just makes you see demons everywhere and then you die back and in kill Vietnam all your friends and kill your friends yes so obviously like this has been a huge influence right huge huge influence i mean we talked about that a lot um and we talk about the like the blurry face thing which we see i mean now that's sort of like a go-to creepy maneuver i think it's much easier to do now than it used to be it's uh, well i mean it wasn't that hard to do though because all he did was he would film it at four frames per second and then play it at a normal speed exactly it's called under cranking you just basically yeah you play it slowly you let the the you know people move their heads around slowly normally and then you play it at a you know accelerated rate and it looks fucked up um, and that shows up a lot more. I mean, we even noticed it, it was in uh, Goodnight Mommy in the it scene where she was. just like wanders out into the woods and her just her head starts twitching. That's that. It's the same exact thing. And this movie is the reason why this hor- like this horrifying thing happens. Yeah. So thanks for the nightmares, Jacob's Ladder. Exactly. And there's a scene in The House on Haunted Hill, the 1999 version, um, that's really similar, actually. It's like a hospital-type scene where one of the characters' heads is like being held in the same head rig that we talked about. Um, and then there's, like, the doctor who's, like, working on him. Like, his head does the same, like, fucked up Twitch thing. 
It's even in the Disturbia video, the, the, the Rihanna Disturbia video, which is also... Disturbia! Sorry. I can't think of the rest of the words of Disturbia. So I don't, I'm sorry for all of you for denying you more of that. Because <laughs> I'm I don't sure know you any of the words it. other than Disturbia. That's the only one you really need to know. So Honestly, I'm... in the Disturbia video, they mostly just actually move their heads around very quickly. And I think they only speed it up slightly. They don't go full undercrank. But still, it's really obvious what they're trying to emulate. Yeah. Um, but this effect also, I mean... Not just this effect. Everything about this movie was a very huge inspiration on arguably the biggest horror video game franchise, which is Silent Hill. Yeah. I guess you could say Resident Evil's bigger. But I think Silent Hill is more known to be like a terrifying, like horrific experience while Resident Evil's like you fight zombies. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. My limited video game knowledge agrees with that. They did um, take this whole undercranking thing. They used it. Like, it really inspired a lot of the ways in which, like, different monsters would move in the game. Um, Pyramid Head is one of the big bads in the game series. And it's basically a big shirtless guy who has a giant, like, metal pyramid for a head. Really, that doesn't sound that scary. He's actually terrifying. Honestly, it sounds kind of sexy. There is, like, weird fan art of uh, Pyramid Head. Oh, no. I was joking, but I'm not surprised. No. I mean, the hospital with, like, the blood and the body parts, like, everything you go into in, a, like, Silent Hill, there's a lot of that kind of, like, bloody, rusty look that the hospital has. Yeah. Um, actually, in Silent Hill 2, the main character, I think his name is James, he wears literally the same jacket as Jacob in Jacob's Ladder. He has a child who has died that he is, like, looking for. And in the Silent Hill series, like, you can unlock a bunch of different endings, um, depending on the choices that you make and such while you play the game. And one of them is you can find out that you actually died in the beginning of the game in, like, a car accident. Like, so much of this series, especially the second one, is very directly inspired by Jacob's Ladder. And there's also, I was watching some play videos of of, uh, Silent Hill online before I decided to just let you handle most of this (laughs) things about video games. Uh, and there's one scene, I think it's a third one, where the main character is on a subway, and there's, like, yeah. at one point she's looking for the Bergen Street platform, and then at another point, like, she gets off at a different platform, and, like, it's the same thing, like, one of the doors is locked, and then, like, another one is, like, closed off over top, and she can't get out of it, and she has to, like, go onto the subway tracks. Like, whoever <laughs> made Silent Hill fucking loved Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, like like you said, it's probably the most influential horror film that a lot of people have never seen. Yeah, I mean, uh, mentioned it earlier, not in the direct way, uh, but The Sixth Sense. Yeah. This was, like, one of the first times that the whole, like, he was dead the whole time, yeah. like, thing came about. Absolutely. And people were really surprised. I mean, I've seen that so many times, and I was still surprised, despite the fact there are literally characters being like, hey, you're dead. They tell you. So many times. It's very clear. And so I was sitting there re-watching it, and I was like, how the fuck did I not realize what was going on? Yeah. Like, they told me what was happening, and I just refused to believe it. Um, but Darren Aronofsky was also supposedly, like, super inspired by this movie. I can see that. Um, I don't know if he's come out and said it, but there's a lot of thoughts that he is. Um, the, a lot of the same directorial tricks were also used in Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. And then some of, like, the body horror and, like, the subway phantoms were used in Black Swan. Yeah, there's the guy who, like, yells at her on the subway. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, okay, I can see that for sure. And then, um, American Horror Story, like. Oh, God, yeah. Especially Asylum. Mm -hmm. But then also. That's all creepy hospital shit. Oh, yeah, it just looks exactly like the hospital scene from Jacob's Ladder, but, like, a little bit less body parts. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, just a little. 
a few. Um, but then I haven't actually watched Hotel. Um, I watched part of it. It's I watched not, the first episode okay. and I wasn't a huge fan. But apparently there's a monster thing that has no eyes and no mouth that uh, attacks people kind of like the eyeless doctor. Oh. And then there's literally a song by Uncle and Tom York that is about Jacob's Ladder. And I they use like that. a quote from it. Oh, Tim was talking about that when we got to, is it the, it's the Lewis quote about yeah. like, if you're, we got to that point and Tim was like, I know a song with that in it. And he was trying to think of what it was and he couldn't think of it. I don't know what to say other than just see this movie. Like it will change your horror viewing experience. But it's forever. not, there aren't really jump scares. No, there's like maybe two. There's one where he like thinks he sees somebody, he like he thinks he sees um, Gabe in a mirror and he closes the mirror and then it's a guy with the twitching face right behind him. Oh, yeah, like yeah. That's like the only one and it works really well. Yeah, but it isn't like, it isn't trying to like make you scream. It's trying to make you feel very uncomfortable the yeah. entire time. It's slow. Which is something that also like the Silent Hill games are known for. Like they're scary and they make you feel really uncomfortable. I first learned about that series from reading a Green Day fan fiction that I was really into when I was 13. Oh my God, that's the most early 2000 sentence I've ever heard in my entire life. And the, at some point, um, they have the band members of Green Day. Does Billy Armstrong fuck Pyramid Head? No. God damn. I feel like that's a different fan fiction. Well, that's the one I read when I was like 18. No, <laughs> um, no I've never read that. It probably exists though, knowing Yeah, the it internet. certainly does. No, but there's a whole thing like, oh, the guys are playing Silent Hill, which is supposed to be like the most fucked up video game ever. And you have to like look inside of a dead cat for a key. Gross. And that's like all I knew about this game for years. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, I think that kind of wraps up our Jacob's Ladder talk. Yeah. I mean, definitely an unusual movie. It is. Really good. Very good. Happy I watched it. Yep. Happy I watched it a second time. Yeah. This is a movie. I think I, I want to watch it a second time. I really like that. Unlike a lot of the movies that we watch, it's fucked up. But I think it like it's not fucked up in the hereditary way where you just feel like devastated. Like it has a positive ending. It's not he fucked gets up. To be reunited in with his son. Um, the way that Goodnight Mommy is fucked no, up, where you better. just hate yourself for watching it. Yeah. It's like you get something out of it. You do. Yeah. Uh, next week we're gonna watch a movie that you don't get as much out of. No. Maddie, do you want to let us know what movie that? Yeah. Um. This is. <laughs> A movie about one of my favorite subjects, Vagina Dentata. I'm sure you all know what movie we're talking about, but just in case you don't, we're going to be watching Teeth next week, next Um, episode. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We would love to hear your thoughts. We would love to hear about what your favorite horror movies are. If you have any thoughts about Jacob's Ladder. If you have ever had a full dropper of LSD. Yeah, I mean, you are probably pretty fucked up now. You might still be messed up because of that. If you're not, or if you are, tell us what it was like. We'd love to know. We would. Um, Let us know if there's anything that you are dying to hear us talk about. We are always open to new ideas. Um, And until then, don't do a full dropper of LSD. If you have, like, five people tell you that you're dead, maybe you're dead. Maybe you are. I mean, I don't want to, like, tell you to do anything specifically, but you might be. Check it out. And uh, we love you. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Mwah.